Welcome to Enduring Interest. I'm your host, Flag Taylor. I teach in the political science department at Skidmore College, and my writings have appeared in venues like the American Interest, Public Discourse, Modern Age, National Review, and Law and Liberty. From the unjustly neglected to the often cited but seldom read, and from the underappreciated to the just plain obscure, the Enduring Interest podcast aims to give important books and essays a wider audience. Some works will allow us to revisit permanent questions, while others might provide unique or forgotten perspective on a very contemporary problem. We hope to educate and entertain and take listeners away from the pressure of the latest news site. Today, we continue our series on American identity and culture with Albert Murray's South to a Very Old Place. In the coming months, we'll be looking at William Alexander Percy's Lanterns on the Levee, Norman Podhoritz's Making It, and Henry Adams' novel, Democracy. I'm very excited about this particular episode. South to a Very Old Place is very much an overlooked classic, and our guest does a terrific job bringing Albert Murray's distinctive voice to the table. Our guest is Greg Thomas. Greg is CEO of the Jazz Leadership Project, private company that uses the principles and practices of jazz music to enhance leadership success and team excellence. Along with his wife and partner Jewel, the Jazz Leadership Project works with noble firms such as J.P. Morgan Chase, Verizon, TD Bank, and Google. Their leadership blog, TuneIntoLeadership.com, features both of their writings. Greg has been a professional journalist for over 25 years. He's currently a senior fellow of the Institute for Cultural Evolution. As an educator, Greg recently taught a course on cultural intelligence and co-facilitated a six-month class, which ended this past March, entitled Stepping Up, Wrestling with America's Past, Reimagining Its Future, Healing Together. Greg also serves on the advisory boards of the Consilience Project and FAIR, the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. His work is deeply influenced by the writings of Albert Murray, so it's great to have him here for this particular episode. All right. Well, welcome, Greg. It's great to have you on the podcast. Uh, we are here to talk about Albert Murray and his book, South to a Very Old Place. So so welcome. Thank you so much, Flag. Thank you for inviting me to speak about Albert Murray, South to a Very Old Place, one of his masterpieces. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear you say that. I'm, I'm always, I mean, I'm, I'm a Murray fan, but I don't consider myself a, a scholar expert. So I'm always curious about kind of where people think about this book in relation to some of his other books, but we'll, maybe we'll get into some of his other books at the end, but we get first, first things first. Um, why don't we start out by just you giving us a little bit of a biography of, of Murray, who he was, where he was from, kind of what he did with his life. Absolutely. Glad to. Uh, he was born uh, in the Gulf Coast uh, in, in Alabama, in Nokomis, Alabama, to Sudi Graham and John Young. And in a about a year, a year later, um, it, was, it was 1916, so about 1917, he was actually adopted by Hugh and Maddie Murray, who moved from Nokomis to Magazine Point, Alabama, which is right near Mobile, Alabama. And the adoption, uh, let me stop the bio by saying the adoption is a very important idea and concept for Murray because he felt that early on, he was chosen and he felt that others chose him and adopted him. And as he was in his later years, he adopted many others from uh, Robert O'Mealy to Wynton Marsalis, Stanley Crouch. And I'm, I'm glad to count myself in that number. I, I felt like I was one of his adoptees. I consider him my mentor. But to continue uh, the bio, so he went to a school that was very significant in his development, the Mobile County Training School. 
where in 1935, he was voted the best all around student and was awarded a tuition scholarship to Tuskegee Institute. And he began attending in the fall of 1935. Uh, in 1939, he received his uh, BS degree from Tuskegee, and uh, he actually returned to Tuskegee from doing some graduate work to teach literature and composition, got married in 1941 uh, to Moselle Menifee, who graduated from Tuskegee in 1943. Um, the next year, he ran into Ralph Ellison, who was an upperclassman at Tuskegee, and they began a lifelong friendship. Um, he enlisted in the United States Army Air Forces in 1943, met Duke Ellington, his hero, in 1946, um, where he also ended his uh, active duty, World War II active duty, and transferred to the Air Force Reserve and returned to teach at Tuskegee, did graduate work uh, at NYU, got an MA degree from, from there on uh, 48, uh, 1950, Paris, met Romare Bearden, was there, and, and frankly, and, and actually roommate, was a roommate with James Baldwin, believe it or not, in 1950. Um, so he, he actually had a career in the Air Force, and he did a lot of traveling where he uh, would take advantage of, of his time and, and his mobility uh, to buy records and books and, and, and travel the world. He retired from the Air Force with the rank of major in 1962. And he and his family, uh, Moselle and his, and his daughter, Michelle, uh, settled in New York in 1962 in Harlem. And you know, he had, through the 60s had various teaching positions, including uh, at the School of Journalism at Columbia. But in 1970 is when his book writing career started. 1970, The Omni-Americans. Next year, South to a Very Old Place. Uh, 73, The Hero in the Blues. 74, his first novel, Train Whistle Guitar. Uh, 76, Stomp in the Blues. He, he published uh, Good Morning Blues in 1986, the autobiography of Count Basie is told to Albert Murray uh, and, and kept on from there. So, I mean, he had quite a life and career. He started as a book um, author pretty late in his, in his life, you can say, uh, in his mid-50s. But uh, he published over 10 books, four novels, and, and a book of poetry, and the rest nonfiction, which really are a uh, encapsulation of the great blues idiom American tradition derived from Black American or Negro American culture, as he and Ellison would call it, um, but as a part of American culture writ large. And he's one of our greatest um, commentators and expositors of that. Yeah. So do you know if he, so I, I was struck when you were, when you were talking too, I don't think I, I, it had quite occurred to me that his writing career didn't really start in earnest in terms of publications until you know, his middle, his middle age. Do you know, though, if he was kind of writing, writing in journals, you know, writing essays or, you know, putting stuff in the drawer, maybe when he's in the Air Force, is he, is he doing some, some writing during that, that time in the 40s and 50s and 60s, but just not publishing it? Or is he really just not, not really writing much until? He started uh, writing in, in the 40s, 
his first novel, which he didn't publish until the early 70s. I think. Okay, so he's he's busy. He's at work. Right. But it was the 1960s after he retired from the uh, armed services uh, from the Air Force that he began as a writer in earnest and he started publishing in various um, magazines, you know, starting off with the help of, of Ralph Ellison. And he collected much of the writing that he did in the 60s in the Omni Americans. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. And and so let's let's get on to South to a very old place. First question is just what kind of book is it? Um, it seems like a bit of a of a memoir, but it doesn't, he doesn't always kind of dig in in earnest in terms of recounting events in the past. Um, he's going to various uh, cities that has significance for him in the past. Um, but it's, you know, it reads more. And I guess, I guess you get from, uh, from the book itself that part of, uh, the material was initially stuff that he wrote for Harper's magazine, at least, at least he intended to, I don't know if he actually published it in Harper's maybe, maybe, you know, but he makes reference to, to being on assignment. So just talk a little bit about what kind of book that is, uh, in front of us when we open South to a very old place. Right. Uh, Willie Morris was the editor at Harper's at the time, and um, he got an assignment to, to go to the South. There was a series um, where writers would go to different parts of the United States, and so he chose the South. And no, it never got published in Harper's, and Willie Morris was no longer the, the editor there by the mm. time uh, it became a book. But he called it a nonfiction novel. Hmm. That's what he called it. So he didn't want it to be a report, but he wanted it to be like an extended metaphor in narrative form, where you had everything from flashbacks to um, uh, streams of consciousness to various, you know, going back and forth in memory and associations. And, and one of the ways he described it he says, if you take his first three books, his first three, excuse me, novels, uh, Train Whistle Guitar, The Spyglass Tree, um, and the third. Seven League Boots, right? Thank you. Right? Yeah, Seven yeah. League Boots, yes. Uh, <laughs> Thank you very much. It just gave me for a second. If you take those three that he conceived of South to a very old place, it's kind of uh, an epilogue to those first three. So that's a very interesting uh, way. Yeah, of yeah. putting it. So the thing about it, he did go to different parts of, of the South. Um, he didn't go just to the South, though. He starts off in Harlem, where he was living, um, and he goes to uh, New Haven, Connecticut, to speak to two, I guess you can say, sons of the South, Robert Penn Warren and C. Van Woodward. Um, but he does go to uh, Greensboro, uh, Carolina, he goes to New Orleans, he goes back home to Mobile, he goes to Tuskegee. And so, yes, he, he travels and it becomes a way for him to connect and associate his own experience, his own memories with that of others and talking about many of the issues of the day, but particularly from perspective of a Black American or Negro American Southerner, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. a, a perspective that often uh, up to that point had not been 
really dealt with in a lot of literary detail, with the exception, of course, of people like William Faulkner, uh, who was one of the shining lights for, for Murray. But yeah, he, he, would, he considered it, he, he said he wanted to make, whereas the Omni-Americans was um, like a polemical intellectual argument, he wanted South to a very old place to be a work of art. Yeah, yeah, very good, very good. Yeah, and in addition, I should say too, in addition to the to the cities, he's usually going to a particular city to talk to a particular person or a group of people, either people who he's met before or people uh, who he's heard to be, you know, people that he should talk to, right? So he seems he seems excited, for example, to get to uh, to meet the novelist Walker Percy when he goes to to New Orleans. Um, he seems excited to meet this guy, um, this this journalist Edwin Yoder. I think he's he's the he's in the Greensboro chapter. So um, he he seems. I guess the the book strikes me as interesting in part because he's reconfiguring his own thoughts about you know various matters having to do with the South and and race and and Black American culture. But he also seems open to to learning something from these people who he's he's either heard are really interesting or you know, he's met, he's met before. So that the other, that's the other aspect of it. It reads like a, a travelogue, I guess I would say, but, but there is um, to some degree, a kind of interesting engagement between him and these, these, you know, figures like Warren or, or Van Woodward and, and others. So. Absolutely. And he also engaged with their work. So yeah. they were journalists. He had read their work uh, and knew their own lineage, you know, um, as, as journalists. He had read the work of, of Pinmore and, and Woodward and others. So he was able to riff on, praise, but also critique aspects of their work in the book and, and talk about the issues that was, there were many issues that were current at the time, but some are perennial issues. And he approached it from a perspective of, like he wanted to see, and this was early on in the book, he wanted to see the extent to which there was reflected in these people's awareness and in the and what they shared and what they would state and what they would say, a connection, a Southern connection between him and them. He would call it a um, Aunt Hagar and Uncle Remus sensibility. Yeah. And they represent kind of... Um, an archetypal Black American wisdom, down-home wisdom. And this is something that's shared not only by folks who have been racialized as Black, but by folks who were around them whom they helped to raise and nurse and take care of. And he would talk about the continuities between the experience of, 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 of Black and white Southerners, quote unquote, but he would also talk about the distinctions and yeah. he'd also talk about the elements that, uh, you know, from the inside of the Negro American culture and idiom, um, their, the perception, the perspective and perspectives that, uh, you know, were commentaries often on what had been written so far in the, in the Southern American uh, literature. And some of the stereotypes, some of the myths, and he would he would counterstate some of those, but he would always do it, always do it in a kind of uh, 
riffing, dashing style, very literary. I mean, the allusions to different figures, but it wasn't just, it was the continuities, it were the distinctions, but I think at bottom, it goes beyond race. It's, it's really more about shared heritage and shared culture. So for example, he talks about early on, Tom Mix being one of his heroes as a child coming up, you know, the, the, the uh, Western, you know, TV character, Tom Mix. And that was a hero heroic person, a heroic character uh, for, for Murray. Didn't matter the, the race. And so by extension, there are many heroes that Southern whites would have who were Negro, you know. Now, I'm kind of reducing it and trying to sum up a lot, but uh, these are some of the themes and some of the dynamics that I found very intriguing. In yeah, South yeah. Twitter. Let me ask you about one one detail since you, you brought up, and I hadn't realized before preparing for the podcast, I hadn't realized that the Omni Americans, that collection was was published. That that book and this public book were only published one year apart, um, which is interesting. But one one thing that really stands out from from Omni Americans is his near, I would say, constant, um, never never ceasing, unflinching critique of of social science. You know, he just. He just hates those social scientists, <laughs> and uh, and that comes up in 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 South to very old place too. So maybe talk for a few minutes about the the what he calls kind of down home wisdom. You already mentioned Anne Hagar and Uncle Remus and these type of characters. And what is it about social science that that seems to kind of preclude or crowd out these other sources of wisdom that? Murray wants to kind of remind people are are meaningful and and need to have they need to be respected I guess is what I would say. Absolutely. Well, he thought that what he calls social science fiction um, was a, a new basis for what he called the folklore of white supremacy, that you would have these abstractions that come from uh, clinical psychology and come from social science surveys that would basically put upon the actual lived experience of Black folk, uh, these terms, theories, and abstractions that were supposedly explanatory of them, but really imposed, you know, of course the old stereotypes are just the straight up racist stereotypes that came from the the legacy of of enslavement uh, and Jim Crow, but this new one where uh, you would have certain ideas like a um, the the the, the Sambo thesis uh, Elkins, where you would have uh, the Moynihan report that basically put the uh, problems of um, that you found particularly in, uh, well, in, in black communities nationwide, you know, from the dissolution of the family. Now it's not the case that there were not problems with the black family, but he, the, the way he described it and putting on the men being emasculated and that type of thing came from a social science perspective. And in the Omni Americans, Murray just slices and dices it, you know, to pieces. And but it wasn't just that it was coming from social scientists 
who were imposing these abstract theories upon the people. It was that there were leaders and spokesmen who were taking these ideas and spouting them themselves as if it described the actual lives they lived and the lives of the, their friends and their families when that wasn't the case often. He's like, you know, what about your own lived experience and what you actually know from that lived experience? So yes, he, um, he railed against um, this social science fiction monster that, that he called it. And he said, look, look at your own experience. Look at your ancestors' experience and take that as seriously as these abstract theories that come from um, psychology and, and political theory. Yeah. And I mean, I guess you can say too, that's why he's, he's so insistent, right? That um, you can really learn, learn something about human experience and, and black experience and Southern experience from reading an author like Faulkner. You don't, you don't need to, you know, open a newspaper to see if someone, right, has, has done some sort of survey of the residents of uh, Atlanta in this, you know, income quintile or, or something, you know, read, read these great, these great authors and think about how they portray uh, how human beings, right, have, have felt about, you know, their past and, and their, and their present. So. Absolutely. Um, yeah. In fact, why don't I just, why, why, why don't I just read a little bit? Yeah, please. Uh, well, he deals with some of this. So this is in the Greensboro a chapter, and he's speaking with Edwin Yoder, right? Okay, so he says, well, oftentimes he uses this rhetorical technique where he says what he was thinking and what he could have said, but didn't say. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, then, yeah. <laughs> But then he says, what you do say in this case are words to the following effect about what you insist are terminological pre conceptions, another name for the misapplication of the word ghetto by cliche conditioned journalists is scenic fallacy, which is also a piece with several other commonly accepted assumptions underlying currently popular misrepresentations of black experience. There is the Sambo fallacy, for instance, growing out of the contention that the experience of slavery and oppression has reduced U.S. Negroes to a subspecies consisting of a parcel of emasculated, shuffling, driveling, head-scratching darkies. There is also the minority group psych fallacy, which functions no doubt to reassure race-war-oriented white cowards that U.S. Negroes have a built-in sense of inferiority because they represent only one-tenth of the population. And then there is the self-image fallacy that permits white one-up men to interpret all Black American artwork as a reflection of low self-esteem. The giveaway on the Sambo fallacy is the all-too-obvious fact that white Americans have long been mostly terrified by the tales of uptown violence allegedly committed by downtown Sambos. How can all of the police documented violence possibly issue from personality structures that are emasculated? The political behavior of employees vis-a-vis -vis their supervisors just can, simply cannot be equated with their total 
makeup. And then he has this in parentheses in italics, which is a technique he uses often, the italicized uh, passages. Why is there nothing ever made of the fact that to be Afro-American is to be derived, at least in part, from a mask wearing tradition. And then I'll finish by saying this, what exposes the minority psyche fallacy is the fact that if you live in a black community, the world looks black. You can't be ignorant of the world at large and over impressed by it at the same time. And the same holds for the statistics of democracy, demography, excuse me. You can't be ignorant of fractions and percentages and oppressed by your awareness of their significance at the same time. As for the self-image as self-rejection ploy, what could be more patently ridiculous than the assumption that the so-called average student's mastery of the tools of communication are such that he can express exactly what he seals, sees and feels? Any competent language teacher knows better than that. And any art teacher knows that the language of art is not to be confused with the conventional methods of communication. On the other hand, how well informed are social scientists on what art communicates in its own terms as artistic expression? Yet what nobody ever suggests is that black people, whether pupils or spokesmen, may misrepresent themselves, whether through incompetence or by design, or that they use a language which is beyond conventional interpretation. Whatever happened to the fact that some people speak foreign languages, some, it must be remembered, even speak private languages. That's just a little taste. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's great. Yeah, I was struck by that, rereading this, the continuities between Omni-Americans and, and South to a very old place. Um, so what's your, let, let me just get your, your favorite, uh, you, you got New Haven, Greensboro, Atlanta, Tuskegee, Mobile, and then New Orleans and Memphis to end it. What's your favorite place that he brings us back to? I've got to, say, I, I've got to say Mobile. That's when he went home. Yeah. Uh, he had been there. He had visited like 15 years previous, I think. Um, many things had changed, but he was able to see some of the same, you know, old folks or peers. Um, and he was able to, with them, reminisce on the times back of the Mobile County Training School and earlier, he was able to give voice to the varied tonalities of the Black Southerners of Mobile, Alabama, who often would signify on uptown, I'm sorry, up north, you know, uh, uh, Black and white folks, who in their Northern presumption would assume that uh, Southerners were not as knowledgeable or hip or aware as they actually were. Uh, so he, he allowed them to, to speak in their own vernacular voices. And he would, <laughs> he would equate it to the sound of uh, instruments in, in the jazz orchestra. So he would say, this one sounds like a sepia toned, you know, baritone sax. And this one sounds like a, you know, a trombone. And this one sounds like an alto or high tone, you know, this or that. And so he's always relating the music and the culture to the tonalities, tonalities uh, and style of the voices. So it was beautiful in that he gave 
voice to, and in this is very interesting because oftentimes earlier, the historic figures in many cases, and you're talking about C. Van Woodward, and Robert Penn Warren, his interiority and his perspective took prominence. But when he was back home, as he says, he was more like a piano player at the piano comping as they soloed. So he let their voices uh, be out front taking the solos. And it's just a beautiful array of uh, down-home um, wisdom, some down-home foolishness, vernacular speech. And they talk about some of everything from Lyndon Baines Johnson to you know, Black nationalists to, uh, uh, as, as Murray would say elsewhere, Marx, Freud influenced uh, thinkers, but they would do it in a very down-home uh, gut bucket way. <laughs> and it's just a wonderful addition to, uh, to American letters by virtue of that. Yeah. The, the, um, yeah, he, he does, he does seem especially concerned to portray kind of the worry that the, the people in, um, not, not the worry, but I guess the, 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 um, the offense that the people in, in places like Mobile take at being, you know, talked down to by their supposed, you know, betters up, up north who, who claim to be smarter and claim to see certain places in the South as just problems that need to be fixed. He definitely doesn't like that, that idea, right? That there are just these problems that we can fix them. And, you know, you people will be better off once we, once we figure out maybe through social science, how to, how to fix all these problems. Right. Oh, absolutely. And, and he says, you know, look, you know, we've been dealing with these problems for a long time and there's, there's, there's wisdom that's come from the way we've dealt with it. And as Murray would put it, you know, one of the challenges is how do you get into scoring position? How do you get in, in the position to affect change? And you do that being prepared. You do that by, you know, you know not, um, to use a Southern phrase, because my, my folks come from the South, Georgia and Florida, by not tearing your drawers in public, by being ready before you open your mouth, by if you if you go on stage to play, you ready to solo. If, you, if you're speaking about an issue, you've done your research. Otherwise, keep quiet. Go into the woodshed, learn, and then come ready. Because if you, and, and, he, and they looked at so many of the folks in the North who were spouting this and that as just like, are they serious? Do they think, you know, <laughs> give me an example. One of the, um, I think he's about the same age at the time of Murray. He says, he says, he says, hey man, let me ask you something. Do you find, he said, in some ways it's good, but do you find that white folks don't laugh at us like they used to? And what he meant was that when there would be certain people up North cutting the fool, as they would call it, or just spouting off at the mouth with nonsense, that it seemed like the white folks, instead of saying, you know something? Mm, mm, mm. You ain't gonna never be educated. <laughs> would like say, you know, shake their heads and be with it. And he, and he, he was like, you know, mm, I got a problem with this because it's like, it's like some of them gotta know that this is nonsense but they're acting as if this is something that, you know, and I think this is something that uh, I would say in particular, white liberals are indicative of, you know, I mean. So the, I, so the, the, the white person wouldn't, wouldn't call bullshit when bullshit should right. be called basically. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. 
and then and the black folks are noticing this that their people are right getting, well this particular, people are getting this, away with stuff that they shouldn't right get away right yeah, yeah. right yeah and another thing they did they, they, they talked about is how folks up north would be speaking bad about their own ancestors those who came before in a disrespectful way and a an ahistorical way and how you know they couldn't you know, imagine doing that because they knew and lived through and lived around people who had sacrificed so much for them to be able to to advance so uh, so it, it was it was really a powerful reflection on not only so-called white black racial relationships not only on the cultural continuities and distinctions between Southern derived uh, Remus on Hager derived children, both black and white, but it was also a reflection on some of the regional conflicts and perceptions, you know, from a pluralistic uh, American uh, perspective among the group, intra-group, you know, so it's, it's just on, in, on so many levels, it's a, a very deep and interesting study. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I wanted to um, to move us maybe we'll come back to, to Mobile maybe, but um, I wanted to move us to a to a different part of the book. I was really struck by this this section in the in the chapter on Atlanta. Mm. He um, actually I don't remember off the top of my head who he's who he's talking to, um, but he he recounts he recounts this incident with a with a waitress. So this is on page, uh, page 82, 83. And we have to remember just to set the context a little bit, right? A lot of the places he's going are, are recently desegregated. Right. And so he, uh, he's talking, he's talking about to, this. He's talking to Joe Cummings, Joe Cummings. Okay. So he's yeah, talking to I Joe Cummings writing for Newsweek at the time. Yeah. And they're, and they're, they're having a, uh, I guess they're having lunch at a restaurant and they have this young white, white wait, waitress and the, um, you know, the subject comes up, you know, what, what might this young waitress think about, about desegregation? And, you know, Murray speculates that, well, maybe this woman, you know, goes home, uh, you know, goes home to her, to her apartment after work and, um, you know, reflects all, all sorts of animosity towards blacks and, and, you know, says, oh, it really makes me angry that I have to serve black people you know this 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 supposed progress is all backwards and you know suggesting that this this um yeah you know young woman harbors all of these racist attitudes right which aren't which aren't evident in her in her behavior and so he says well she you know maybe she's thinking all that stuff in her head i don't know um but he says well what if we what if we think about um you know just we just go by her um her behavior and so he says um uh, I'm just going to read a chunk of it. So this is the middle sure. of page 82. She says, um, but but is what she says when interviewed on desegregation as a specific issue really more significant than the way she is acting right now with me sitting right here? Look, man, I'm not about to find more change in white Southern attitudes than a white Southerner like yourself will concede. Not me, man. But if you say these cats are getting ready to fire on Fort Sumter again, I, for one, am not going to dispute you. But the point is, I'm not down here to run any statistics, but just to see how it feels. I'm operating on my literary radar this time, my metaphor finder. 
How about that? And you know what my goddamn radar is telling me about this girl? That she's a country girl, new to the great big city of Atlanta, a young girl from the provinces, the Georgia Sticks, come to seek her fortune in the big time. And she was far more concerned about getting our orders right just now than about anything else in the world. My radar indicates the difference between her embarrassment when I had her help, uh, when I had to help her spell Heineken, and when you had to help her pronounce shrimp Arnaud was nil. She was relieved and thankful. Man, what she is really worried about is some stern-eyed maitre d' and some evil-ass cat back in the kitchen. That's not the whole story, of course, but it is part. The, it is the part of the story that most often gets left out. Well, I happen to think that attitudes just be might be a little too tricky for the statistical survey in the first place. Certainly, the survey as we know it. But you know something? I'd be willing to bet that this girl isn't actually running into nearly as many desegregated situations as she had anticipated. And get this, had already prepared herself to accept when she decided to come out of the sticks. Mm. I just think that's so interesting. And it speaks to kind of difficulties today with, um, you know, people trying to detect racism, you know, beneath the kind of benign surface right um that may, maybe you're harboring racial attitudes maybe you have privilege right that you're not acknowledging that you have to uh, have your consciousness raised about you know what your what your true feelings are and i just think it's interesting that murray seems to be saying sometimes the surface behavior is what matters and maybe this woman has all these bizarre um retrograde attitudes maybe she doesn't but what I what I'm going to go by is the way she's treating me in this restaurant. And from, you know, from that from that standpoint, it's, you know, seems OK. Right. She she didn't mind it when I uh, told her how to spell Heineken. You know, she she, she seemed like a normal young girl. Um, so I don't know that that passage just resonated with me. So I'd be curious to get your thoughts on it. That's a great that's a great uh, passage to recount. I mean, for one thing, he's looking at her like an individual. He's not just looking at a race. Of course, he's acknowledging how she's racialized, but he's saying he's, he's dealing with the texture of the actual experience in the moment and how he as a mature man observes her as a young woman trying to do a job and saying that isn't that also a part of the story? So, you know, earlier in that passage, you know, say if you were to interview her, and then get quotes on her about what she thinks about the racial situation, she might have some of those bigoted kind of perspectives. But isn't it important in the actual human interpersonal and professional situation? And I think that's why it was so important to capture that. So I, I, I love that passage. And when he talked about, see, he's always doing these riffs. You know, what, what did he say there? That he wasn't, um, he said he wasn't dealing with statistics or something. How did he put it? Because there's a passage I want to share that's er a little earlier in the book, which goes back to what you were saying about social science. And he always says, I got my, and he said, in that, I think in that passage, I got my literary radar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My metaphor right? finder. Yeah, my yeah. My metaphor finder. Okay. So he says this, now I'm, I'm using the modern library edition. So I think the pages are different. Oh yeah, I got the vintage, so. Uh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is in the, this is uh, also, I think in Greensboro. Yes, this is Greensboro. 
And he says, the point, of course, is that so many reporters mistake social science metaphor for facts these days without realizing that even the most precise concepts are only nets that cannot hold very much flesh and blood experience. Whereas the most pragmatic thing about poetic metaphor is that you know very well that your net cannot trap all of the experience in question. Indeed, you feel that maybe most of it has eluded you. You readily concede that formulations generalized from scientific research findings may be nets with a closer weave. Still, not only do they remain nets, but at best they trap even smaller areas of experience than literary configurations, expressly because there are necessarily a narrower weave. As with what Kenneth Burke calls trained incapacity, scientific insight may be more sharply focused, but its field of vision is likely to be correspondingly more limited. So when he talks about field of vision, he also talked about horizons of aspiration. So he's dealing with literary and poetic metaphor because they may not fully capture as metaphors the actuality of, of experience, but they are more, he thinks, more true and have more a wider application to our lives. So, I mean, you, you mentioned Kenneth Burke there. Kenneth Burke is a very important writer and thinker for he and Ralph Ellison, um, as were so many of the great writers of the past, particularly the great uh, high modernist of the time, uh, from Mann to Hemingway to Faulkner, Joyce and others. And he riffs on all of those people throughout, but he also riffs on, you know, Frederick Douglass. And so, I mean, he's weaving in all of these different elements uh, into this narrative, um, this nonfiction novel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe we can move to, to another kind of specific, interesting formulation that um, I wanted to ask you about. It comes near the end of the book, but we can, we can jump back, uh, back into the middle later. But he, at the end of the book, um, in the in the Memphis section, he talks about uh, the need for more quote blues oriented political behavior. Blues oriented political behavior, and so this is a it's it's not it's a it's a literary masterpiece, obviously, and and um, but he's also you know talking about as as we've just talked about you know political issues and social issues of, of segregation and uh, and rights and you know, the movement, um, the movement towards more equality in the South. So, so he does take on some political topics uh, and he seems to be, uh, I mean, and I think it's clear he's in, in this book and others, he's, he's quite dissatisfied with lots of the uh, kind of pseudo revolutionary posing that he thinks, you know, goes on in, in his own, in, in the, in the black community. Um, he has no patience, on the other hand, for the kind of neo-segregationist. And he even, and so, so you know, those are some of, I, I guess, those two targets you, you might say are expected to an extent, if you know anything about Murray. But he also takes on uh, the sainted Martin Luther King a little bit. 
and so he at near the end of the book he comes up with this with this uh with this recommendation for more blues oriented political behavior um and he thinks that will um be an improvement over what what he sees as i guess you could call the kind of the king in the mainstream of the civil rights movement um so may so maybe talk about that a little bit just just any, i guess any of that but but most specifically the the blues oriented political behavior absolutely I mean, he, both in the Omni Americans and in South Rivero Place, talks about the limitations of the politics of moral outcry. Hmm. So certainly King, coming from a, a Christian um, perspective and one in which he used um, Gandhi's ideas uh, and, and others to formulate a incredible strategy where these moral ideas were the basis of a nonviolent uh, tactical approach to what became the civil rights movement um, had a powerful impact, obviously. Through the religious dimension, um, he was able to tap into the currents of a traditional worldview that undergirded so much of not only Black America, but you know America itself um, from a Christian perspective in particular. But Murray saw limitations to that uh, when you're dealing with you know, the hard scrabble, real politic world of you know, electoral politics and long-term political events. So um, if I go to this this portion that you're talking about, uh, I'll share I'll share um, a little bit of that. I think that's very important. He says the problem is how to evolve socio-political tactics and strategies that are truly indigenous to and and compatible with the dynamics of U.S. Negro lifestyle. Because until somebody does, the so-called masses are not likely to become very deeply involved, no matter how earnest your appeals, even to their self-interest. Take the example of Martin Luther King, whose name is now also a part of Memphis. For all the justification of his theories of nonviolence that he found in Thoreau and Gandhi, it was probably the charismatic dynamics of the down-home church that most of his followers, even the white ones, many of them non-Christian, were responding to. If you could only get enough spokesmen and leaders to consider the possibility that the dynamics inherent in the blues idiom might be extended further than King was able to take those derived from the down-home church. Not that you did not celebrate the effectiveness of King's method as far as they went, methods as far as they went, but as a political device, they were limited as all moral outcry is bound to be limited. So what you hoped was that the blues idiom, being of its essence, a secular form of existential improvisation could produce something better. If you could get only a few key spokesmen and leaders to help you tee off on some of those hypocritical white do-gooders and one-up men who misrepresent it as being something you should either outgrow or be cured of. If you could do that, maybe you can get a few of them to realize that when they confused Uncle Remus 
with Uncle Tom, they were probably allowing themselves to be faked out by superficial political rhetoric instead of relying on their actual experience. Mm. Maybe you could even get a few to realize what they were doing when they let some third-rate con man jargonize them into denying Aunt Hager as if who, if not Aunt Hager, is the source of all stone foxiness. Man, if you go to the Waldorf to see Lena Horne and don't realize what she's riffing on is Aunt Hager, you're wasting your money. That was another one of those italicized <laughs> said. So, so the thing is, a secular, and that was capitalized, a secular form of existential improvisation. The thing about the blues in him and the thing about jazz is that it prepares you for, from Murray's perspective, heroic action. And heroic action means that you are prepared to not only fight, uh, and when you're in battle, and Murray was a military man, you gotta know when to retreat, when to hold them, when to fold them, but you gotta be ready to improvise. You gotta be ready to assess um, the situation. There's a, there's a term that comes from his military background, always have to get an estimate of the situation. So one of those distinctions were what worked in the South wouldn't necessarily work in the North. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that was a, a, a lesson that um, Dr. King paid with his life. Yeah, yeah. It strikes uh, me too, there, there, I, just to add something on that point, there, sure. there's a great um, Bayard Rustin essay called From Pro, I think it's called From Protest to Politics that reminds me a little bit of what Murray might be trying to get at as you have you just described the the blues oriented political behavior in that and it's this seems consistent with Murray's broader vision of of um shared identity and kind of civic friendship that you know focus on the concrete right despite what people say about your identity as a southerner or my identity as a as a yankee or your skin color or my skin color Marie is always seems to be saying, focus on on the concrete and you might discover some unexpected affinities. Right. And if you sort of transfer that into the political realm. Right. Then you're in the then you're in the territory of, oh, I have a kind of unexpected potential coalition with this faction up here and and I can riff on that. And, I, you know, if I, if, if I make a deal, I can cut a deal here and and get these folks over here on my my political side. And so there's a there's a kind of concreteness and, and realism of of vision, I think, in this in this blues orientation, uh, which is which is interesting, too. Let me share this last paragraph. This is a couple of pages later where he says all you need claim for blues idiom oriented political behavior at this point is that it is less given to self-defeating self-righteousness mm. and is moral outcry rhetoric. All you need to point out is that when self-righteous people you know turn to violence, they seem to spend so much time justifying their right to pick up the gun that they forget to learn how to shoot, as if the rightness of the cause were in itself a functional substitute for combat readiness and combat intelligence. All you need to say is that blues-oriented people are conditioned to confront the facts of life. 
Mm-hmm. So that concreteness that you're talking about, that readiness we've been alluding to, and, we, and, and the readiness to engage in smart symbolic action and smart material on the ground action, um, and a willingness and readiness to improvise. See, the reason he's talking about a political perspective informed by the bluesism or, or informed with the blues idiom is that because it's secular, it's not going to be so otherworldly. It will be based in this world and it will be based in the material realities of this world. But it will, it will be, it will have the flexibility, the flex and flow to adjust to what's necessary in particular situations at particular times and moments. What works in this moment may not work in that one. And you develop slowly a, a, a wisdom. That's why I call it the blues idiom wisdom tradition. Um, and he's just applying these, this wisdom that's been developed by a blues idiom folk for over 120, 150 years and saying, you can apply it to your life. You can apply it, of course, to the music and to the other and to art. You can apply it to communication and you can apply it to political life also. Mm-hmm. So he was just extending, as he says, extending, elaborating, and refining by applying the blues idiom. Good. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about, um, I mean, I think we'd be we'd be remiss if we at least didn't didn't mention him going back to Tuskegee. That's a that that's a big one to miss. So why don't you say a few things about um, Murray's reflections on on his his teacher, his literature teacher, Morteza Sprague. And, and just teachers, he says some interesting things about the importance of teachers in general. Absolutely. That was another one who he felt uh, was a big influence and who in many ways adopted him. You know, uh, Mr. Baker at the Mobile County Training School, you know, was another one. You know, it's interesting because Morteza Sprague graduated from Hamilton College, which is my own alma mater. Ah, interesting. Oh, so, yeah. So I've actually oh, done. That's cool. The research on Morteza Sprague and Hamilton got his uh, records and his grades and that type of thing. Morteza Sprague was, uh, he was so influential because he was a, a prototype um, of the not only very knowledgeable um, teacher who dressed to the nines or dress, you know, dressed to the T um, in a way that Murray associated with the way you're supposed to dress when you were in college. Yeah. But he was very open. See, I'm showing you my, I'm showing you my tie. <laughs> I just taught today. So I'm I, keeping yeah. the tradition alive. There you go. <laughs> so, so, you know, Morteza Sprague is someone who uh, not only was, did he introduce uh, Murray to a literary world and a dramatic world, theater. I mean, he wasn't the only one, but he was very important for that. Um, but also when he would talk to Sprague about literature and he would talk to him about, you know, ideas and, and, and articles he'd read in literary magazines and this and that, you know, Sprague would, would uh, engage him and he would be open to learning himself. You know, so so Sprague was a, a very important uh, person, not only when Murray was a student, but even afterwards. And so 
when he reflects on Sprague, by this time Sprague had, had passed away. I think he passed away in the mid '60s, so it was kind of bittersweet. Mm-hmm. But, uh, as but as Murray does, he turned around and says, "Yes, but but us remembering him, and of course, um, Murray writing about him and so many other of his fellow students at Mobile County Training School at Tuskegee in this chapter." They're remembered not only in Murray's mind, but now they're on page. So um, Moteza Sprague is someone that both he and Ralph Ellison honored. In Ellison's first collection, book collection, he he dedicated to Moteza Sprague, you know? And so he was a very important person for, for Murray. And that, that teacherly tradition and what... Uh, my colleague Zach Stein calls teacherly authority. You know, Sprague had that, Murray had that. And um, they were wonderful in the way that they recounted those teachers who influenced them. And they in turn through their work and Murray in particular through direct interaction. Uh, I mean, Murray didn't um, uh, decide you were worthy to be a, student of his based on race, uh, Paul Devlin, one of his, uh, I think of his generation, Paul Devlin is, is the preeminent Murray scholar who um, edited a book that I participated in, Murray Talks Music, Albert Murray on Jazz and the Blues. I wrote the foreword to it, uh, was a student. Um, and, and there are many others of all kinds of backgrounds um, who Murray adopted and who he passed on, it's like each one teach one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that's how the culture um, advances, you know, intergenerational transmission, they call it. Yeah, he talks about, he, he's talking about Sprague and, and um, in the Tuskegee chapter, and, and he says, um, he says this about teachers in general. He says the, uh, the crucial, if not definitive good fortune that is yours for having been a pupil in whom he took special interest is everlasting because such is the comprehensive generosity that all truly great teachers radiate as much outside as inside the classroom that you will always rejoice at the mere fact that he was there when he was. Mm. I love that. Um, Yeah, that's really beautiful. Um, So maybe that's a good time to say a few things about your, uh, your interactions with with Murray and and what he was what he was like as a person and this this transgenerational thing going on say say some things about Murray as a person. Oh, goodness, um, well, when I started to uh, visit him in the mid nineties, I mean, he was already very up there in years, and he wasn't um, as spry and energetic as he had been, you know, he was walking with a cane and that type of thing by this time. But one of the things I remember about him most was his, his earthy laugh. He had a great sense of humor. And one of the things about his literary style and his speaking style is that he could be really down to earth and even bawdy, but he could speak, you know, in with the most sophisticated cosmopolitan all in one paragraph at times you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so he his 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 style integrated those elements i remember that 
I remember when I first uh, approached him, I had an idea to do a book featuring um, his perspective and the perspective of John Hendrick Clark, who is like a, um, amongst um, particularly black nationalists, black folk, uh, folk historian of, of note, um, and Lerone Bennett, who was a former editor of Ebony Magazine, who was also a historian. Uh, I wanted to do a book, you know, looking at their perspective. That's because at the time in the early to mid nineties, I was, I was grappling myself with these different perspectives. I was trying to come to terms with it myself. So when I spoke to him on the phone, I'll never forget, I was in my literary agent's office. I had sent him a letter, you know, so that he would take my call. And uh, he took my call and he asked me, he said, he said, hey man, why you put me with those guys? You know? <laughs> <laughs> But he also said, but you know something? You can't sleep on that Clark. He said, one time I heard that he had been talking about me. And he said, Murray talks about the things that those other guys don't talk about, you know? And see, Clark was a, was a Southern Alabaman himself, see? so uh, they, Interesting, yeah, yeah. They, 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 they shared that down home, you know, those down home roots or roots, as my folks in Georgia and Florida might say. So I remember that. I remember visiting him and wearing a mud cloth uh, uh, jacket that I was very proud of, Afrocentric, and he ribbed me mercilessly. He said, hey, man, don't you know when Nelson Mandela comes to the United States, he wears a Western suit. <laughs> Don't you know that we follow Greenwich Mean Time? You know, <laughs> you know that's one of the things about Murray. He was thoroughly Western. You know what I mean? He was a man of the West, uh, which one one interviewer said, "Well, you're a man of the West, but you're you're black." He's like, sure, what else am I supposed to be? He says, the folks who think otherwise, they're racist. You know, <laughs> what am I supposed to be? I'm an American. He viewed American civilization or American culture at its highest level as an extension of European civilization at its highest, at least in terms of potential. Um, he thought that the, the, the biggest diaspora was actually the dispersion, the dispersion or dispersal of European ideas throughout the world. You know, so, I mean, he was, he, he looked at things in terms of actual cultural dynamics mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and he was big on that, you know, the natural history and cultural dynamics, what's real, where are we, where have we come from? Okay. Right. You know, so, I mean, he didn't deny that in terms of American culture and Black American life in particular, that there's an African-derived dimension. He, he didn't deny that. But overall, he's looking at how these various mixtures, you know, Constance Rourke with her archetypal figures in American humor of the, uh, the Yankee, um, the backwoodsman or the Native American 
and and the Negro as archetypal figures. But then there's John A. Cohenhoven's ideas about how American culture is a combination of like a down-home vernacular with more elevated scholarly ideas, you know, and the mixing of those things. So for Murray, his omni-American perspective is always a mixture, a composite. Nothing is just some pure one thing. It's always a mixture of elements as it typified e pluribus unum, out of many one. So, um, you know, the, the, so, I mean, I'm, I'm riffing on some of his ideas as I think about my interactions with him, but I would suggest that people, of course, check out his work and check out Murray Talks Music because in there is an interview and a conversation that I had with Murray when I was starting a doctoral program in American Studies at NYU. And I said, well, I need to talk to the master. I need to, to you know, and I mean, my goodness, it's like the stuff we talked about and the people we talked about from the 20s and 30s who were central to American studies, you know, that stuff like the back of his hand. Yeah. But, it's, but, it, but in that interview, some of the, I think it was some of the only times he had actually talked about some of those, some of those, uh, some of those people. Mm -hmm. uh, so anyway, um, yeah, that's a great wonderful. interview in there with him and Winston Marsalis. He interviews and has a great conversation with Dizzy Gillespie in that book. Uh, Bob O'Mealy interviews him. There's a great uh, conversation, uh, um, an account where uh, he, Lauren Schoenberg, and Stanley Crouch are listening to the music of Duke Ellington and riffing and talking about Duke Ellington's legacy. It's, it's wonderful. So that's one book uh, I would suggest. I would also suggest Conversations with Albert Murray, um, edited by Roberta S. McGuire, uh, another one of uh, his... Uh, his his students in a, in a way, uh, she would definitely admit that, and and then of course his his nonfiction and his fiction. I mean, I just think that he's an American treasure, who um, more people need to know about. And South to a very old place is is one of the greatest treasures of his body of work. Do you is uh, if people are are um, coming coming to Murray new and haven't read anything. Do you, do you think South to a Very Old Place is the is the place to start necessarily? Would you start with his fiction? Would you start with um, maybe, I mean, I think Omni-Americans, I'll ask you this, is that's probably the book he's most well known for. Um, but is, is there is there just an obvious first first step or does it does it not even matter? You just dive it in. And what, it matters what you're looking for. If you want to really dive into his perspective on music, I've already mentioned uh, Murray Talks Music. Albert Murray on jazz and blues, but of course they're stomping the blues. Mm. His classic poetics on blues idiom music, there's that. Uh, if you wanna check out his integration of a heroic perspective, a literary perspective and the blues, check out the hero in the blues. You know? Yeah, and that's the benefit of that is relatively short, right? Yeah, Three, that's right. Pretty, but pretty it's, short essays. It's short, but it's packed with, Yeah with wisdom. Uh, the Omni-Americans, him at his most swashbuckling and, and polemical in dealing with the issues of the day. So uh, those would be good places to start if you like poetry. Um, what is it? Um, re reiterations and, and 
conjugations and reiterations, I think it is, book of poetry. So it really matters what you're looking for. Okay. But if, but if you want to really dive into his perspective on the South, um, oh, the Briar Patch File, from the Briar Patch File is another one that features pieces unpublished previously, interviews. Um, but if you want to check out his perspective on the South and Southern experience, I would start with his novel, Train Whistle Guitar, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? And then uh, the Spyglass Tree, the last part of which is like a um, an adventure story, you know, um, and dealing with his, his college experience uh, through his fictional alter ego, um, Scooter. Uh, and and then I would I would check out Saltovero Place. I almost would say check out those two works of fiction first, because that will prepare you for the way he interweaves memory and recollection and association in such a beautifully literary fashion. And then and then check out Saltovero Place. And then um maybe last last question so it it seems so he now he has um he he's been put in this pantheon of writers right included in the library of america um so i i guess all his his writings can be found in these nice library of america volumes that's right yeah I definitely um, um edited by paul devon who i mentioned before yeah. and henry lewis gates mm-hmm. yes mm-hmm. Um, Both nonfiction and fiction. Yes. It, so, is would you say that that um, there's? I mean, may, maybe part of um, has is that the effect of a kind of um, Murray Renaissance? Is there you know last maybe five ten years? Is there a kind of renewed interest in Murray as his um, kind of stock as a as an American literary figure? writer on the on the rise i mean it seems to me for a long time he was um not ignored but certainly not as as well known as as um as ralph ellison for for example um but but maybe it's it seems to me he his his reputation is on the is on the rise is that is that right well i would say that um you know it rises it falls it rises it falls you know, in 2016, which was his centennial, um, there were a series of of essays, uh, Mine in the New Republic, Thomas Chatterton Williams in Nation, mm. and others that, that honored them. I did a series of public programs at the National Jazz Museum in Harlem and Jazz at Lincoln Center, and a one-day symposium at Columbia University in collaboration with Robert O'Mealy and the Center for Jazz Studies there. Um, I would say that, I don't know if it's a renaissance, but I would say that um, in my own work, I am certainly dedicated to making sure that his ideas are a part of the dialogues and discourses and controversies of today, because I think it can bring so much insight and wisdom to to themes and topics that are so they look at they looked at in such a narrow and often reductionistic way. So I mean Thomas Chatterton Williamson, he also talks about the work of Murray. In fact, I'm involved in a project shaping an omni-American future where last year and last last October, we did a two-day broadcast 
titled Combating Racism and Anti-Semitism Together, Shaping an Omni-American Future. And we're continuing that work. I'm collaborating and I'm doing it through the Jazz Leadership Project, my, my company with my wife, uh, Jewel Kinch Thomas. We're doing it in collaboration with two Jewish organizations, the American Sephardi Federation and the Combat Anti-Semitism Movement. And, um, and, and in late August, sorry, late November, we'll, uh, we're gonna do an in-person event in Harlem um, at Minton's uh, Jazz Club in part, um, continuing this work. And so we, we do that work, which is centered on Murray's work. Uh, we are looking to develop a, what we call an Omni-American movement people can understand these ideas and be enriched by them and move beyond the fallacy of race and color consciousness and focus more on character and cultural excellence. That's the ticket. Mm. And that's what we're so it's, to... yeah, it sounds like Murray's legacy is kind of at the core of of what you're up to these days so that's that's one oh, he, yeah. no he's definitely a, a, a central part of it and he and not just me and thomas chariton williams there are others who i've mentioned both in the academy and and out a uh, young man coleman hughes um who has his um conversations with coleman um podcast he is both a rapper and a jazz musician a jazz trombonist brilliant young man and he had a, um, a, 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 a rap tune or hip hop tune called Blasphemy, in which he says, I'm an Omni-American. Mm. There's a young lady named Chloe Valdery, who has her own podcast and has gotten attention. She also um, is very influenced by Albert Murray's work. So we need multi-generational recognition and acknowledgement uh, of the work and wisdom of Albert Murray and it's happening. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, Greg, this has been a really great conversation. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing your reflections on South to a Very Old Place and your reflections on Murray himself. It's been been really terrific conversation. Absolutely. And, and let, let me also mention, and it's not just in the United States. Uh, a, a dear friend of mine, R.E.A. Tepper, who was working with me closely. In fact, the two of us are the kind of the engines behind this shaping an omni-American future a movement. And he's based in Israel and he's translated some of Murray into Hebrew. So this is not just uh, wow. United States based, this is international, baby. Yeah, Murray would, would get a kick out of that, I bet, being translated Absolutely. into Hebrew. Yes. Well, thanks again, Greg. We'll see you soon. Thank you, Flag. Take care. You've been listening to Enduring Interest, a podcast sponsored by the Zephyr Institute. The Zephyr Institute is a community of scholars, students, and professionals committed to gaining a fuller understanding of the human person and the common good. For more information about Zephyr and its programming, go to zephyr.org. That's Z-E-P-H-I-R.org. Please follow Enduring Interest on Twitter where you can find information about past and future episodes and message us, please, to recommend guests or books. Our Twitter handle is at the EIPod. That's T-H-E-E-I-P-O-D. Thanks again for listening and see you next time on Enduring Interest.